Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Here at Freddy's, we could tell you how our original double is a steak burger made with 100% lean ground beef. Cooked to order with deliciously crispy edges. And finished off with our Freddy's famous seasoning. But... We'd rather let our original double speak for itself. Couldn't have said it better ourselves. Enjoy food made fresh the Freddy's way. Tap now or learn more at freddysusa.com. There's just so much people don't tell you about having a baby. And that's why my new podcast, The Healthy Baby Show, is here. I'm Shazi Visram, and I want to share what I wish I'd known the first time around. You'll hear from experts like Dr. Aliza Pressman and Dr. Philip Landrigan and personal stories from mothers like Minnie Driver and Sarah Haynes. So listen to The Healthy Baby Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. It's me, Brian Baumgartner. And maybe you've heard my podcast. The Office Deep Dive. Well, now I'm expanding it into even more of your favorite shows in my new podcast, Off the Beat. Hey, everybody, I'm Rob Riggle. Hi, I'm Allison Hannigan. My name is Jamie Lynn Segler, Meadow Soprano. Eric Stone Street. I played Cameron Tucker. Listen to Off the Beat on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. Okay, so before we dive into this week's episode, we have some very exciting news. Thrillist Explorers was nominated for a Webby Award for Best Podcast in the Lifestyle category. We're extremely honored to have this show and our lifestyle recognized, and we're very appreciative of the ongoing support for our podcast. So if you're a fan, while you're listening to this episode, click on the link in our description and give us a quick vote. Questlove is currently destroying us in the voting, so we would really appreciate your support. Anyway, in the spirit of looking back on our work like a proud parent or guardian, today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Over the past couple seasons, we've had the privilege of being able to cover some of our favorite restaurants and bars across the country and look at travel through a lens of food and all the personal, nostalgic, and vital perspectives that all entails. 
Today, we're dipping back into our vaults to show you some of our most popular and beloved segments that we've done in the food and drink space. We have a sentimental tour of LA's Thai town, an interview with Virginia Ali, the iconic owner of Ben's Chili Bowl in Washington, DC, a profile of Jimmy's Corner, the best dive bar in New York City, an exploration into the lore of the Philadelphia cheesesteak, and to start, the transcendent and always evolving soundtrack to one of America's favorite chain diners. This segment first aired in February of 2021. It's Waffle House Records. Good morning. Good morning. The Waffle House way. I like it that way. We've got eggs anyway. You like them. 24 hours a day. Just come on in. Come on in. Hi, I'm Jerry Buckner, part of the duo of Buckner and Garcia. I'm a arranger, musician, producer, record producer. Jerry Buckner has had a lengthy and successful career crafting catchy tunes on unusual topics with his songwriting partner, Gary Garcia. That's Gary Garcia, by the way. I know, I thought the same thing at first. Anyway, they wrote the theme from the 2011 Disney smash hit Wreck-It Ralph. And the theme for 70s sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati. I'm living on the air in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. A lot of TV nerds will actually tell you it's one of the great theme songs of all time. And of course, he wrote Pac-Man Fever, which peaked at number seven on the Billboard charts in 1981. And most importantly, for our purposes... And I have recorded and produced and written pretty much all of the Waffle House songs that you get to hear on the jukebox. So how did Jerry become Waffle House's de facto maestro? They had an idea. They wanted to do songs about Waffle House and put them on a jukebox. They didn't want to do commercials. They wanted to do songs that sounded like songs and talked about Waffle House, but not trying to just blatantly be a commercial. So come on, let's spend Saturday night at my place, Waffle House. So we started Waffle House Records. All 2100 Waffle House locations feature a jukebox. It's been that way since the 24-7 diner chain opened their doors in 1955, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And nowadays, modern hits live alongside classic Waffle House Records bangers like There Are Raisins in My Toast. And They've Got a Coke for Me. And my own personal favorite, The Meat Lover. He's the meat lover. Jerry actually does not care for that one. I can tell you one I don't like because it involves meat. <laughs> they wanted to do a song about serving meat in the restaurant. So somehow we come up with the song called The Meat Lover. 
And in the studio, whoever we had to do it, they couldn't do it or didn't show up or something. I don't remember exactly. Well, we got to get this thing done. So they told me to go in and do it. And I didn't particularly care for that. How it started, the Meat Lovers Play. He's the Meat Lover. These songs are ridiculous and bizarre and kitschy, but they're also weirdly catchy and they have a ton of attention to detail. They're pretty endearing. So for me, as a northerner who has managed to spend many a late night and road trip pit stop at the Waffle House, it is the perfect encapsulation of the Waffle House experience. They created this atmosphere of family, of good feelings, and then the jukebox was, you know, music for people to hear, and then all of a sudden they could hear songs on there kind of reaching out to them about Waffle House and reinforcing that family feeling. And I think it was a natural thing to happen. I think if we had put commercials on there, it wouldn't have been the same. The songs Jerry and his team made are just one tiny bit of the minutia that makes Waffle House unlike any other restaurant chain in America. And over the past 35 years, Waffle House Records has put out 40-plus songs, and they're still making music. If you want, you can go hear all these songs that are on the jukeboxes all over the country. They're everywhere. It's interesting because people that I will meet and they find out some of the things I've done and, and they'll compliment me or whatever, and, which I always appreciate. But if I mention Waffle House, it's like they get really excited sometimes. It's <laughs> want to go, hey, I, I've written million-selling hit records, you know, and you're excited about the Raisin Toast song, but, you know, that's okay. It is okay because food, as previously mentioned, plays such an integral part of memory, which is, of course, the load-bearing pillar of nostalgia. So our next segment, first published in December of 2020, is a personal story, baked into a tour of Thai Town in Los Angeles. It's also, to be totally transparent, one of my personal favorite segments we've ever done on this show. Thrillist ace food writer Kat Thompson and her mom, Surasvati, can take it from here. So I'm just about to pull up to my mom's house. Um, we're going to go all over Thai Town to some of our favorite haunts. <laughs> I don't think my mom knows what a podcast is, but she will never say no to a little adventure. So I think it's going to be really fun. I was born in Bangkok but grew up in L.A. And like most immigrants who don't speak English and know absolutely no one after moving across the world, my mom wanted to find a community of people who understood her culture and language. Knock, knock. Luckily for her, she moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> Good morning. Are you ready to go? <laughs> mom! <laughs> my mom and I have always been extremely close. I think we had to because... When she immigrated here, she had no one. It was just me and my brothers. She's an artist. I'm a writer. We're kind of just two peas in a pod, obsessed with spicy food um, and motivated by our love of creating. I'm just going to set up her mic while, that, <laughs> while the song ends. It's a running joke among Thais that Ellie is the officially unofficial 77th province of Thailand because it houses the most Thais in the world outside of Thailand. The result is the only Thai town in all of America 
which is a little six-block pocket in East Hollywood, sandwiched by Las Villas to the east and Little Armenia to the west. Let's go. And it has some of the absolute best Thai food in all of the states. It's, it's always nice driving here because then all the restaurants are in Thai and it's, I don't know, doesn't it feel kind of, it feels very like home. Mm. We're heading to one of my favorite restaurants in Thai town. Blink and you might miss it. That's because Siam Sunset, which serves Thai breakfast food starting at 6 a.m., is located in the lobby of an America's Best Value Inn. Um, I was going to ask you, do you remember the first time you ever went to Sam Sunset or no? Oh, long time ago. I know, but how long? Like 20, 25 years? <laughs> I think around that. I think the Thai people, they know that place very yeah. well. Yeah. Sam Sunset has been around since I was a kid, so at least 20 years of life-altering jok or Thai rice porridge. Theirs is filled with garlicky meatballs and served with bachong kol, which is a Chinese-style fried cooler, and you can use it to dunk it into the porridge, but I prefer to dunk it into condensed milk, and it's stupidly good. That's so good. All right, America's best value in motel. You want to park in the front? But it's not just the food that is stellar. It's everything about Sam Sunset that makes it so special to me. Do you have enough quarters? I have it. Okay. The walls are adorned with Thai art and images of the king. The TV is always blaring either Thai news or some corny new Thai soap opera. It it is a place that spans generations and is absolutely cherished by me, my brothers, and my mom. And I guess the rest of the Thai community in LA for all the comforting and filling meals it's provided. Okay, Loom, I forgot it's cash only. I have $8. (laughs) It's the kind of place where you hear most people ordering in Thai. Next, one block over is another spot that's been around pretty much all my life. We're going to go pick up food at Ban Khanom Thai. Ban Khanom Thai, which literally translates to House of Thai Desserts. And then we're going to go eat up Griffith Park. Their specialties are desserts of all kinds, Fresh-made Thai crepes, coconut and sticky rice pancakes studded with corn, plush bread buns stuffed with pandan custard, and, of course, my favorite, mung bean pudding. And it's where, back in the day, my mom used to buy, like, Thai calling cards uh, to call Thailand. Oh, let me get my wallet. So, different time. All right, we're getting out of the car again. But it's definitely been a pillar of the community. Wait, I want, I want uh, bangji for sure. Uh, bangji, uh, okay, bangji. Chut ning ka. Is this not cash only, right? Yeah, I have it. Okay, okay, I got it, Mom. <laughs> With our joke and our bachanko in tow, we made our way up to Griffith Park. Dude, he's not even in the right lane. <sighs> well, we just had one small issue. Oh my gosh, it's because he's not from L.A. He's from Tennessee. He doesn't know how to drive. I feel like when I come home to L.A., I become a worse version of myself because well, when I drive, drive, I get so mad. <laughs> That's why I like taking the train. And New York is good for me. <laughs> Well, New York, good for you, but it's far from from me, far from mommy. I know, I'll come back for you. Don't worry. They only gave us one spoon, so I'm just going to drink this soup. (laughs) Boy, I'm out of food. Mmm, yum. (laughs) My mom is eating tofu and ginger soup, Mm. and I'm eating rice porridge with pork meatballs. And I just finished... The Chinese-style donuts with condensed milk, so good. Mm. Mm. Wow, I feel like a kid again. The meatballs are the best part. 
I love it. So at this point, we were really full, but we had one last stop to make. Oh, <laughs> okay, let's put your mic back on. Okay, this is for you. How do you feel about being on a podcast? Is this is this annoying to you? No. Oh, something different. Our last stop on our mini road trip through LA's Thai community is actually going to take us out of the six block radius that is Thai Town. Drive to Laksi, Yeah, five south. Okay, cool. Instead, we're zooming to Laksi in Chinatown, also known as Thai Costco. All right, we're on our way. Laxi is where every Thai restaurant owner stocks up on their ingredients. There are tubs of palm sugar, gallon buckets of soy sauce, and every flavor of mama instant noodle you could possibly want stacked in cardboard boxes. Okay, we're here. Okay. It's also where my mom, an enthusiastic home cook, snags some of her ingredients. Do you need a cart? The giant warehouse not only houses a bunch of ingredients, but also the tools for those looking to replicate Thai meals. You can find woven bamboo steamers for sticky rice, a giant clay mortar and pestle for somtham, and every size rice cooker that would be appropriate for yourself or for your family. Okay. What are you getting? You're getting shrimp paste? I want to get curry powder. Curry powder. It's honestly one of my favorite places to wander in. I never knew that there were so many types of srirachas or oyster sauces or chili oils. I like smelling all the imitation scents, like jasmine and pandan for Thai confectionaries, which is really cool to have. And I love stocking up on fresh chili paste in the small deli-like counter housed in the corner of Black Sea. They have like every type of chili paste that you can possibly Ooh. imagine. Oh. Wow, that was <laughs> an excursion. All right, let's see if we can get out of this busy parking lot. It's so busy. Mom, do you feel like um, because there's a Thai town in LA that you felt very close to Thailand? Yeah. By going to Thai town? Yeah. Sometimes I think I don't need to go back to Thailand. Really? <laughs> because uh, they have a Thai temple here, they have a Thai food here, Thai yeah. restaurant, Thai market. I think, you know, the main thing for the people, eat. Yeah. Right? They have a good Thai restaurant here. Some, <laughs> some restaurant in Thai food here, I think a lot better and tasty more than in Thailand. Yeah. But the Thailand, they, anyway, it's Thai food style, is a yeah. A lot, a lot of Thai food anyway, yeah. but here, not bad. What do you think What do you think you miss the most about Thailand that you can't get here? Uh, my childhood family. Oh, childhood, okay, yeah, yeah. My childhood family, you yeah. know, my aunt, my cousin, my mom cousin, you know, in yeah. Bandala. That's yeah. just my, the place I grow up. Yeah. I have my, my family over there. I'm going, I'm going, I'm turning. Oh, oh you're turning. Ah! I'm turning, I'm turning. I'm going! Oh. I'm so, so fortunate to have grown up in LA. I mean, the Dodgers and Lakers both won their respective championships this year. The sun is almost always shining, which means beach days in February are entirely plausible. And of course, as established, the food scene is incredible. But most of all, I love the little community in and around Thai Town that has really shaped me, provided me with language, and given me and my mom a place to call home so far from her own. Wow, thank you, Mama. You're welcome. You I have fun with you. Okay. I truly cherish yeah, being both Thai and an Angelino. And I love it. I yeah, Thai Town is home. All right, let me take okay. your mic off. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> nice to talk to you. I don't know you, but I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> me too. So since recording this episode, Kat has actually moved back home to L.A., a nine-minute drive from her mom, 
Uh, we're not sure if she's still an angry driver, but we are sure that her mom, Sue, is very happy that she's back. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we get back, dive bars, cheesesteaks, and Ben's Chili Bowl. Stick around. In late 2021, we released an episode about Times Square. Despite being the so-called crossroads of the world, it's easily the most reviled neighborhood in Manhattan by locals. But we spent some time trying to prove that it is, in fact, a neighborhood. One that is totally worth your time if you can get through all the bootleg Elmos and walls of LED-fueled advertisements. And it all starts at Times Square's own neighborhood bar, Jimmy's Corner. Surprisingly, there's a pretty cool and old and not pretentious dive bar right in the middle of Times Square. It's easy to miss if you don't know where to look. My name's Michael Doherty, and I'm a bartender here. Were you fans of before you were here? Very much so. Uh, years. I mean, you know, if you come to Times Square, you get to Jimmy's because where else are you going to go? It's really, it's the best bar in the neighborhood. The prices are cheap, the people are nice, you get great conversations. It's a real bar. Uh, my boss always says it's a neighborhood bar without a neighborhood. On West 44th Street, less than 100 yards from the center of Times Square, you'll find a small bar with an old blue awning tucked between hotels and parking garages and nondescript Irish pubs. This is Jimmy's Corner, not only one of the best bars in the area, but one of the best bars in the entire city. I remember the blackout in 2003. Me and my mom bartended that entire night. My dad was here, we worked together. It was the busiest night that Jimmy's ever had. And we were the only place open because we were the only place that could keep our beer cold. Being the three of us, like in here, working, we worked till six in the morning. That, that may be one of my best memories because I just, it's when I learned to be a bartender and it's also like the first experience that I had with my parents where they really were like, oh, you could run this place. Adam Glenn, who I'm speaking with at a table in the back of the bar, is a graduate of Harvard Law School. He runs a boxing managerial company. And now he also runs Jimmy's, which reopened a few months ago. It's been closed for the majority of the past two years after being open since the early 70s. So my parents met here. My mom was a bartender here before it was Jimmy's. My dad wasn't in the bar business. He was uh, actually in the hat and wig business and in boxing. He has this 70-year career in boxing as a manager and trainer and cut band, just like a general good person. Like people come to me and say, I only met your dad once or twice, but like what he told me that night or what he said meant a lot to me. And you know, this bar has allowed that, it's facilitated that. Jimmy Glenn, Adam's dad, was friends with Muhammad Ali. He was a local New York City celebrity. Eventually, he bought the bar where he met his future wife, and it became an institution in itself. Last year, at the age of 89, he passed away from complications due to COVID. Adam's mother, who was originally from Poland, passed away several years earlier. But for him, Jimmy's is more than a bar. It's basically his home. We used to eat Thanksgiving dinner here. We, you know, I'd be here two in the morning playing checkers with my dad, like when I was 10 years old. So there's so much of my family history here that it just, it feels great being in here. I miss, uh, you know, 
people ask me like, oh, is it hard because you miss your dad? I miss my dad all the time. Like I feel closer to him here than when I'm anywhere else. And I know how much he loved this place. Like, you know, when I reopened this place, it was one of the prouder things I've done because I know how happy my parents would have been. Like reopening the place and getting back to it is such it would have been such a huge deal for them. The drinks here cost three to five dollars mostly. The jukebox is filled with old Motown standards. The walls of the space are covered with boxing posters, including a rumble in the jungle print that Jimmy purchased himself at the actual fight in Zaire. There's countless newspaper clippings and plenty of photos of famous regulars. I remember like Drew Barrymore used to come here in her like early 20s when she was in her like party days, but I was I was in like middle school and it came out in the paper and all my friends were like, when can we go? Because like everyone had a crush on Drew Barrymore. And it's like, one, you can't. Two, like, I don't think she wants to be bothered by a bunch of middle schoolers. De Niro used to come here, so he made them shoot a part of Raging Bull in this bar. And Adam still lives in Times Square, just a couple blocks away. He's seen the area change from a gritty neighborhood to a tourist attraction. But he still believes it's very much worth seeing. Should you still go see it? Like, yes, of course you should. It's something to see and it's something to experience. And the idea that, you know, the greatest theater and music in the world is right here and some of the best food in the world is right here and you're going to avoid it because there are tourists here. Like, tourists go to places that are good usually. Like, you know, when I go to other cities, I don't skip the touristy things because, eh, oh, it's going to be crowded. What makes New York special is the fact that everything is compacted. It's put together. And it's like what I love about New York, that rich, rich and poor aren't separated. Black, white, Hispanic, they're not separated. You see all those people every single day. And that's part of Times Square. Like, everywhere you go, you're going to see everything. Like, I just, I love this city. And this is an integral part of the city. And Jimmy's, hopefully, will always be an integral part of Times Square. Every time I walk through that door, even though my parents aren't here, they're here with me. And so everywhere I look around the bar, I see them like my mom greeting me when I come in, my dad sitting. This is exactly what it's been for 70 years, right? We've fixed a few things and we've changed a few things, but for the most part, we're the same place and we have the same spirit in the place. Jimmy's is exactly the type of place we love to feature on this show. It's so much more than a bar. It's an essential part of New York City. In another episode from late last year, we applied so much of the logic we featured in the rest of today's segments. Food as a community pillar. Food as a central aspect of nostalgia. Food as a way to understand a place and time. And we took it all to Philly where we tried to find out not only where we could find the best cheesesteak in the city, but also what that even means in the first place. So the Philadelphia Inquirer service editor, Jillian Wilson, took us to John's Roast Pork, where we tried to answer both of those questions. And now we're going to go down to South Philly, to John's Roast Pork, where John Bucci will welcome us and greet us. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met. So, oh, cool. Yeah, you'll love him. When we pull up to John's Roast Pork in an industrial area right by the river, 
We make a beeline to the small trailer office behind the very small restaurant, and here we are greeted by two barking dachshunds and Mr. John Bucci. Hello. Hi. John's great-grandfather opened the place in the 1930s as a literal shack by the harbor. And as soon as we walked in the door, John started taking out sepia-toned photos out of an old envelope and spreading them all over his increasingly cluttered desk. I wanted to show you those pictures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh you're going to love these, actually. My sister uncovered these pictures. What are these right here? This is the old plays of my mom and dad. That's my mom. This is the place gutted. Wow. That's the old place. You know, it's all, I mean, this, this is my dad. Yeah, that's the mid-80s. It's a picture of me and my dad and my mom. This is the customer at the grill, at the, the counter. This is my dad screwing with the coffee urn. <laughs> and this is crazy. As we were looking over the photos, mind you, this was like 30 seconds after I met this guy, he started tearing up a bit. And I really don't blame him. It's just so special. Like, I really think... Like, not I'm not belittling other places. I'm sure other places. But this place is very unique. I mean, the history that we have here. And that my mom is still my boss. She's 88. But, like, she still does the time cards. You know, like, I'm, I'm the best grill guy and sandwich maker. I am not a businessman. Like, I'm the worst businessman. Because, like, I just want people to be happy. He is so not preoccupied with the business of food, he didn't even know about the James Beard Awards until he won one. So I get a call at lunchtime, and um, a woman says, hi, I'm from the James Beard Foundation. And I thought it was like a scam, like they sell plaques and they give you an award and then they sell, it's really the plaque company giving you a stupid award that means nothing. (laughs) It's truly a blue collar steak shop. It closes early and every ingredient is cooked to order. The classic here is whizwit, which means with cheese whiz and with onions. This is the type of spot where people come from all over the world to visit and then decades later, bring their kids. Like my dad would get excited if someone came from Jersey, you know, like we went from like, you know, being excited from Jersey to having somebody from Czechoslovakia, (laughs) like Yugoslavia, Russia, you know, like we had people from China all over the place. And it's such an honor. It's such an honor. Like, they'll come right here from the airport. Like, That's amazing. We have the Liberty Bell. We have, like, all these other things that are, like, they they, want they, like come here first. The cheesesteak itself, which Jillian and I devoured inside John's office, was simple. It was balanced. It had a sesame seed bun and a drip that would not quit. It's almost exactly what Carolyn described as the perfect cheesesteak. And it has been called the best before in a very public forum. These four, four high school kids, they come on a Friday and it was their senior project to find the best cheesesteak. So they contact Craig LeBan to get some advice from him and say, hey, you know, can you help us out, blah, blah, blah. Add some validity to it. Craig LeBan is one of the most respected food critics in Philly. He works for The Inquirer with Jillian. And in the early 2000s, a group of local high schoolers enlisted him to help out with their senior project, which was, obviously... Finding the best cheesesteak in Philly. Eh, Sounds familiar, right? He wrote the cheesesteak ranking article with the kids, and it totally blew up. John's became a worldwide cheesesteak destination. Oh, and also, 
Actually, the one of those high school kids, I think I told you this, he's my dentist now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and he doesn't charge me. I'm like, dude, you got to charge me. Do you have his card? I'd love to call him. I, uh, I would have his number. Oh, shit. <laughs> so I obviously called this guy. My name is Andy Shore, and back in high school, me and three of my buddies decided that we wanted to find the best cheesesteak and rate cheesesteaks for our senior project. After the article came out, we were known as the cheesesteak guys. Like, we were almost famous. You know, I remember rushing a fraternity in college, and, oh, my God, the cheesesteak guy. You know, it was a big deal at the time. Andy and his crew tried almost every cheesesteak in the city over the last few weeks of high school. They thought a long time about this with professional help, and they came to a familiar conclusion. I think best is a sandwich that you eat and you can't stop thinking about it. Whenever you eat a cheesesteak, it's good. I mean, it's hard to have a bad cheesesteak. Right. But I think the way the meat is flavored, too, every bite, doesn't matter what bite you have, it's just delicious. It's like the scrap meat that is cooked on a grill. You can get American cheese whiz anywhere and you just put it on a bun. And it's so, it's so easy to make, but for some reason here, it's just it's different. They've perfected it, and we're proud of it. At the risk of sounding like a broken record or a glitching podcast, you really can't underestimate the role that long-standing restaurants play in the shaping of a community. And maybe more than anything else we've shared today, our next segment really exemplifies that. Ben's Chili Bowl isn't just the most famous culinary institution in Washington, D.C. It's one of the most important restaurants in America. And not just because their chili dogs and half-smokes alone are worth a field trip to our nation's capital. Ben's is more than a restaurant. It's a gathering place, a symbol. It's a continuously operating piece of history. Over the summer of 2020, as the pandemic hit the restaurant industry hard and Black Lives Matter protests were held in every state in the country, we spoke with Virginia Ali. She and her late husband, Ben, opened the Chili Bowl in 1958. She's seen the country and her city change around her. And she's seen Ben's transform from a small business into one of America's greatest restaurants. And no, that is not hyperbole. The history and the food are an essential American experience. Here's Virginia Ali. My husband came here from Trinidad to matriculate at our universities. And of course, he worked his way through school back in those days. Financial aid wasn't so easy as today. And so he worked his way through school working in restaurants. I was working at an industrial bank down the street. And so we met and we wanted to be married and we wanted to be self-employed and he thought the, right, the restaurant idea would be a great one. And we'd do what is now called casual dining. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had this great chili recipe that we could put on half smokes and hot dogs and so on. So that's how the idea was brought up. And then we needed to find the ideal location. Well, U Street was known as Black Broadway back there with our uh, African-American um, entertainment center. And we thought if we could get something even near there, it would be perfect. We opened on August 22nd. And it looked very modern for that time. You could see all through the whole place. We had a, one big piece of glass, plate glass in the front window. And we had late hours. We opened at 11 o'clock and closed at 3 a.m. Four on weekends. 
and right away we were uh, accepted in the community and the rest is history. Naturally, the late night hours and incredible hot dogs made Ben's an ideal spot for the after club crowds. But there were jazz clubs, nightclubs, music halls, restaurants, everything. And most places closed at 2 a.m. So yes, even entertainers that performed downtown, when they completed their assignment that evening at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, then they head up to our Black Broadway Street and then Chilibo was open to receive them. Including some musicians you might have heard of. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a people person. I, you know, I enjoy meeting Earl Bond or Ramsey Lewis or Duke Ellington or Cab Calloway, all of them. You know, they were all in and out of that area and in and out of the Chili Bowl. Sammy Davis, Miles Davis, all of them. You know, next door was a place called uh, the Casbah. Casbah mm. was jazz. At 11th and U, the Bohemian Cavern was very popular. And then there were house parties. That was another thing that was very popular. House parties in everybody's basement. Big, make a big pot of spaghetti and something or other. And have a house party and dance until 2 o'clock. And then you go by Ben's and get something to eat. But nightclubs and were very popular. And as I said, jazz clubs were popular. And it was just a happy time. And it was during this time that Ben started to become a hub for media members looking to take the pulse of the community. The media used it as their place to get the African-American perspective on things during the days when we were a separated city. Mm-hmm. So it could be the new, the new uh, quarterback for the Redskins. It could be the new manager. It could be something political. It could be anything. And the media would just pop by Ben. And not to see me, but to see my patrons, right. to see the guests, and to listen to them, to talk with them about what's going on in the city at the time. So it just evolved, I think. Was that always important to you and your family? Was it something that you wanted when you started the restaurant to not only you know serve food that people like, but to be a gathering spot, to be a part of the community. It was most important to me, Will. It was most important to me because I enjoy people. And for me, I feel like I'm inviting them in my home. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you want to be, you know, you're, you're warm and welcoming and you hope to give them good service and to make them feel comfortable and happy. We have the jukebox blasting all the time. So there's a happy mood there and uh, great food. And that always brings people together. And Ben's started to get national attention as one of the most frequented businesses for one of the civil rights movement's most prominent leaders. Dr. Martin Luther King had a satellite office at 14th and U. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference was right there. And so whenever he was in town, he'd make his way down to the Chili Bowl and we have an opportunity to sit down and have a little conversation and hear about his dream. Just was happy to see him and so proud of his um, efforts for the movement, you know, nonviolent movement that he had and had that march in Washington on 1963 mm-hmm. where he brought thousands of people in town and we were able to bring down, you know, just bags, bags and bags and bags of sandwiches for some folks. And um, the very following year, we passed the civil rights law. I felt like he had been a very, very effective uh, leader. Mm-hmm. And then in 1965, they passed the Voting Rights Act. But then 
1968, his life was taken violently, and that was extremely difficult. I remember the night so well on April 4th, 1968, and the people were in tears. We were all in tears, and then when, you know, after a while, the sadness turned to frustration, and frustration turned to anger, and then uprising began that lasted for three full nights. A curfew was put into place. Ben's Chili Bowl was the only place in town that was allowed to remain open during those three nights of curfew. It was a little bit scary because there was a lot going on outside. And then the neighborhood was literally destroyed. The businesses never reopened. Sons and daughters are out here still fighting for what we fought for more than 50 years ago. Basic human rights. Basic human rights. We're still fighting for that. That's, we fought for that back there. So that's a very big similarity. I think that... Um, the difference is we had that, you know, strong leadership in Dr. King and Dr. Lowry and Jesse Jackson and all of those. But today I'm impressed because the young people are doing it on their very own. Mm -hmm. Their conscience and their hearts is taking them to the street because they know that this is not the right way to be. And they're, not only that, but look at the diversity. And look where it is. It's in Washington. It's in Philadelphia. It's all over the country. It's all over the world. It's a, I mean, I am really impressed with that. I think that uh, this has to have an impact. Right. This has to have an impact to get some kind of uh, basic human rights laws um, taking place. And I think they're being persistent, and I think that's a good thing. The nonviolent ones are wonderful. We don't have that much violence every now and then. I think we have some agitation. Mm -hmm. But basically, those young people that are out there doing that, are serious about wanting change. Ben's Chili Bowl is still up and running at their original location. They've even expanded to open several satellite locations across D.C., including inside Nationals Park. So you can have a half-smoke during the seventh inning stretch, or any inning, really. Thankfully, the core of Ben and Virginia's mission and so much of what made the Chili Bowl such a welcoming environment to everyone still exists today. My children probably have that feeling that they would know all the other business owners and the people that, because they're there a great deal more than I am now. Right. Unfortunately, I like being there. I used to go every day until the pandemic came into town. I think people see us still as a community place. Although the, the residents have changed, we still have that um, feeling of we know we can depend on Ben's. We know we can go to Ben's if we need help. We know Ben's is going to be open. We're always open. I know it means a lot to me, especially if I want to go someplace, I want to know that they're going to be there. So we have struggled to stay open, but we're going to continue to do that. Thank you so much. And I look forward to visiting Ben's one day myself. I certainly hope so. And kind of, you know, you have this number. Let us know. I'd like to be there when you come. <laughs> I certainly will. So thank you so much, okay. Virginia. I really appreciate You're your so time. You're so welcome. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. If you want to listen to the full episodes that feature today's segments, we have links in our description that will point you in the right direction. And one last time, we'd love for you to give us a vote in this year's Webby Awards. And I just want to say, again, how much we really do appreciate your ongoing support. Every time you listen, it just means so much to us. 
I'm going to leave before we get emotional. But thanks again. And we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. This show is produced by myself and Mia Fask, edited and mixed by the otherworldly Dean White and Abby Austria. Special thanks to all of my bosses, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, and Emily Feld. That's it for us. Put your tray tables up, leave your shoes on, and we'll see you next week. Bye.